following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. Uh, several weeks ago, I was taking my kids for a walk, and we just kind of got out of the house. We go for a walk. We have a, a normal loop that we walk from our house. We walk around, and then we walk over to the fire station, and then we walk you know, past King's Closet and then up, up through the middle of town. And if you've been that way, you've been by King's Closet and kind of headed into the triangle, as you're going towards the triangle on your left side, there's this thing that is on a pole in the sidewalk, has a cord, um, and you can actually like pick it up and you put it to your ear. You have to put coins in it and you can push in numbers and it calls people. And there's a payphone there. My kids had no clue what this thing was. Like, dad, what's, what's that? Well, kids. And so then I start feeling really old. In my day, when I was a kid, we didn't all have cell phones in our pockets. If you wanted to call, and I told them the story of how when I lived in Nashville, I'm like, that was like an eight-hour drive. I drove eight hours away, and when I got halfway, there was an Arby's at this town, and I'd stop, and I'd call mom and dad from the payphone. Like, you had to know people's numbers and everything. It was crazy, (laughs) and my kids are just like blown away by this fact, But, but the point here is that we all understand, right? If you're of a certain age, you know what a payphone is. If you're of a certain age, you don't, probably don't know. And even if you know, you've probably never used one, right? Because things in life change, right? Things that were once indispensable to us, that we needed, become obsolete. And it's not that the, the need that's present changes, right? Because we still have a need to get a hold of people when we're out and about, when we're traveling, when we're going someplace. We still need to get a hold of it. The need hasn't changed, but we find more efficient ways to meet those needs. Why do I bring this up this morning? Because the unfortunate reality is that more and more people see the gathering of the church this way. It was once indispensable. It was once necessary. But anymore, there's lots of better ways to do church than gathering together on a certain day, in a certain place, at a certain time. Where we live in an age where we can jump online at any given time and hear the best preachers in the world. We can listen to the most epically moving worship music. We can hear the greatest teaching. And we can do it all from the comfort of our living room without ever taking off our PJs. Right? If this is the case, how can the gathering of the local church still be necessary? Is it still necessary? Now, you can probably guess what my answer to that is going to be. Yes, the gathering of the local church, what we do here today is still necessary to our lives. And here's the thing. God still thinks that too. God's word still teaches that. 
So the question is not, is the local church necessary? Is gathering together as the local body necessary to our faith? The real question we have to confront is, why is the gathering of the church still vital to your faith and to my faith today? Over the next four weeks, this is what we're going to be talking about. We're going to look at four crucial aspects of the gathered church, of why this is important to a biblical faith, of a life lived in complete surrender and submission to Jesus Christ. Okay, before we even get into it, I'm gonna give you the overview of the next four weeks. If you wanna remember what we're talking about for the next four weeks, I'm gonna give you four words, okay? Upward, inward, outward, forward. Upward, inward, outward, forward. Say those with me. Upward, inward, outward, forward. One more time. Upward, inward, outward, forward. Why is the gathered church still vital to your faith and my faith? Upward, inward, outward, forward. So let's get started. Today, we're going to discuss the upward importance of the gathering of the body of Christ. And the first thing we're going to see in this upward importance is that gathering reminds us of God's majesty. Gathering reminds us of God's majesty. And again, we're going to start in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 23 through 27. And this is part of King David's prayer. After he's been anointed as king over Israel, he gives this prayer of thanksgiving. And as part of this, verses 23 through 27, he says, Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Proclaim his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wondrous works among all peoples. For the Lord is great and highly praised. He is feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Did you hear the command? here? Did you hear what David commands right at the beginning of this? He says what? The whole earth is to sing and declare, great is the Lord, splendor, majesty, strength, and joy are his. The whole earth is to sing, to declare. This is the work of all of creation. That includes you and me. The work of all creation is to sing and proclaim the glory of God. When we gather together in this time, we do this in a, in a small, small way, right? We will never, this side of eternity, have all of creation at one time singing, praising God, declaring his glory and his majesty, okay? It's never gonna happen. But when we come together as a church, we get a small slice of that, right? Look around for a second. Look around, look to your right, look to your left. If you're able, maybe turn back, right? When are we ever all together? When in the week is this group of people from this diverse background with these different interests, with these different obligations, when are we together? We're not, but we come together as the gathered church to say, this is not about, we are not gathered together because we share some common hobby or we work in the same area, or we live in the same community. 
We come together because of the glory and the majesty of God. And so we praise him. We proclaim his glory at the top of our lungs. So David says all of creation is to proclaim the glory, and this is what we do. When you look at the New Testament, you see a similar, a similar command. If, if we were to jump ahead to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, since we are receiving, right, we, this is the believers, all believers, everyone who has confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God accept, acceptably with reverence and awe. And it says, because of God's majesty, because of his unshakable power, how do we respond? With worship. We respond with a collective praise of our God. Does this always happen? Does this always happen for you? It doesn't for me. Hey, let me be honest. It doesn't always happen. Why? Because you and I far too easily forget the majesty of God. And we get distracted by the things of our lives, by the day-to-day tasks in this world. This is why this gathering is so important. Because this is a time and a place and a setting that we have set aside to come together to proclaim the majesty of our God, to be reminded. See, because if left to ourselves, we will always forget that. This happens far more often than I should probably admit to you that it happens. All right, but I'll be working and, and Aaron will text me and go, hey, can you pick up, you know, bananas or something from Shaheen's? And Shaheen's is right on my way home. Like it's, it's not out of the way at all. I drive past it every time I go home. I'm like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll do it. I'll remember. Right, and then I get in my car and I'm like, okay, I gotta stop by Shaheen's. And I start pulling out the driveway. I'm like, don't forget to stop at Shaheen's. Next thing you know, I'm pulling in the driveway of the house and I'm, I'm turning off the car and I'm literally stepping out. And I'm like, bananas. <laughs> what happens in that moment? Am I trying to be a jerk? Some of you are gonna say, yes, it's not, that's not it. <laughs> no, I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm not trying to ignore what she's asked me to do. It's just I get into autopilot. I made that drive thousands and thousands of times and I just do it without thinking. So when I get to Sheen's, I just keep going. Why? Because that's natural for me. I have to make a conscious effort to step out of what is natural and do what I know I need to do. The same thing happens in our worship of God's majesty. Right? We sit here today, I think pretty much all of us would say, yes, I know God's majesty. I've been taught about it. I understand it. I could cite Bible verses about it. But sometimes we get so consumed in the day-to-day regular tasks of our life that we passively bypass what we know to be true. And there are lots of ways for us to overcome this. But one of the most practical is by gathering with the church body. Gathering with brothers and sisters in Christ in a place, in a time, and with a practice that is meant to draw our attention to God's majesty. 
We need that reminder. This is why God, when he brings the Israelites out of Egypt, and if you remember in Exodus 12, God gives the Israelites all of the commands for the the Passover feast. And he says, listen, you're going to take this perfect lamb. You're going to, you know, wipe its blood on the door frames. You're going to gather together. You're going to eat. You're going to do all this stuff. And I'm going to do this incredible thing. But in Exodus 12, verse 14, God also commands them this. This day is to be a memorial for you. You must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You are celebrating it throughout your generations as a permanent statute. Why does God tell them they need to do that? Because he knows they'll forget. Remember the story of the Exodus. Remember how many days across the sea they walked before they forgot everything they'd just seen God do. Three. Three days and they forgot everything. So God says, no, 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 you need this practice to remind you to keep this fresh in your minds. Gathering with the church body is a weekly reminder for us of how good and how great our God is. And listen, we all desperately need that. Whether you think you do or you think you don't, you do. I do. We all do. We need that reminder. So the question is, when we think about the gathering of the body, do we understand this as an opportunity for us to actively pursue and participate in the celebration of the majesty of our God? Gathering reminds us of God's majesty. And while gathering reminds us of God's majesty, we also see that gathering reminds us of Jesus' sacrifice. Gathering reminds us of Jesus' sacrifice. Let me read for you from the book of of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, however you want to pronounce it. Right, if you, you, some of you know my rant on pronunciation of Old Testament names. Right? Nobody knows how to pronounce them, so just say it however it makes sense to you. It's fine. Okay? Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16 through 19 says, I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no fruit, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. I know, right? You hear that and you go, what in the world does that have to do with Jesus' sacrifice? Thanks for asking. Let's talk about it. (laughs) Most of Habakkuk's prophecy in this this writing is is a cry for God's divine judgment to fall upon the Assyrians, this wicked nation that God used to punish the Israelites and to plunge them into the chaos of their own sin. Habakkuk is saying, God, punish this wicked nation that has defeated us. And this would eventually happen, but it would take 30 years. It'd be 30 years before Habakkuk sees the answer here. 
But in spite of all of that, as he's praying for God to do this work, Habakkuk ends his prayer with this, this declaration of God's majesty. And in fact, if you read chapter three, verses three through 15, you see this, this prayer of God's majesty before he closes the book by expressing his confidence in God and in God's salvation, which is what we just read. He's confident in God's salvation because he knows that God is in control and he knows that God will deliver his people and bring salvation. Again, Habakkuk sees this in part 30 years later when God exacts his judgment upon the Assyrians. But this side of the cross, we understand that that is fully realized in Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19, Peter writes, for you know that you were redeemed from the empty way of life inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Peter says, I know you thought you were being delivered by your religious acts, by being a good person, by being nice, by taking care of all this stuff. He says, no, 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 that doesn't do it. God gives you his full deliverance only in Jesus Christ. And listen, our world can be dark and chaotic. Let's not pretend that life is rainbows and butterflies. Our world is dark and chaotic. And sometimes it can feel like God is absent. Amen? Yeah. Sometimes it can feel like maybe he's just left us to our own devices. Like he had better things to do than to continue to mess with us. And that can leave us sometimes looking at our situations in life and wondering, okay, God, what are you doing? Just get me out of this, right? That's where Habakkuk was. God, what's going on? Just get me out of here. This is a totally normal feeling. In fact, read all of the Psalms and read David. He's constantly going, God, what's going on? You've left me to the dogs. I'm being chased. I'm being pursued. I'm going to die. But he always ends going, yet I will praise you in your sanctuary. Yet I will worship you. I will praise you. Right, the question of God, where are you? What are you doing? That's an okay question to ask as long as, and this is key. It's an okay question to ask as long as we allow the question to bring us back to the foot of the cross. As long as we allow the question to point us to the gospel. To say, God, I don't know what you're doing and I don't know what's happening and I'm frustrated and I'm really upset right now with the way this is going and how you haven't delivered me and how I'm, I, I just feel like everything is crashing in on my head. But I know that you are God, the God who created the heavens and the earth with nothing but a word from your mouth, a God who is sovereign, reigning and ruling over all things in all places and at all times, a God who is working all things together for your glory and for the good of those who call upon you, a God who knew my sin and my depravity and the ways I have run from you and the ways I have rebelled against you and still saw fit to love me and send your son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin in a manger in Bethlehem so that he could live perfectly, die sacrificially, rise victoriously, and deliver me completely from my sin and my depravity, not because of who I am or not because of what I have to offer the kingdom, but because of who you are and because of the depth and the majesty of your love 
delivered through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The question is okay. You don't have to know what God's doing at all times. You won't know what God is doing at all times. But do we allow that to bring us back and make us all the more grateful for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? See, this is where the gathering of the church is so helpful. Because my job as a a pastor, as a preacher, our job as a church is not to tell you everything we think you need to know about God and the Bible. That's an impossible task that we will never accomplish with an hour and 15 minutes a week, 52 weeks a year. My job as a pastor and a preacher, our job as a church is to remind one another, to remind our hearts of Jesus' sacrifice, the sacrifice that brings us into God's mercy and makes us a part of our family, which fills us with the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome the chaos and darkness of the world around us, not by our strength, but by the strength of the God who loves us and delivers us. This is why we sing praises together when we gather. Not because we always are feeling exactly what we're singing, but because we need the reminder that what we're singing is true. That's why we open God's word. Not because we feel like, okay, God, I I really want to worship you right now through your word. No, it's because we need to be reminded that our God is true. Our God is loving. Our God is kind. Our God is gracious. And our God alone delivers us. The gathered of the church is a scheduled tune-up and a recalibration for our hearts in the midst of our weeks, our days, our months, our years in a dark, broken, and chaotic world. So do we know through our time with the body of Christ, do we come in this place ready to be renewed in the hope of the gospel? and to look to our brothers and sisters and to help them renew their hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gathering of the body reminds us of God's majesty and it reminds us of Jesus' sacrifice. One more. Gathering also reminds us of the Spirit's power. Gathering of the body reminds us of the Spirit's power. In Ephesians chapter five, verse 18 through 20, the apostle Paul writes, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you've heard these verses taught before, Often they're used as the primary argument against drunkenness. Getting drunk is a sin. Paul says so right here. That is a fitting application of that verse. But that's not the purpose of that verse. That's not the meaning of that verse. More importantly than talking about drunkenness, that verse is a reminder of the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of the believers. What Paul says is, why would you give yourself over? Why would you give control to the useless and and emptiness of human substances that will only ever fail you? 
When you can surrender to the guidance and the wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit. See, through that submission, submission to the Holy Spirit and nothing else, through that submission, you are connected to the power of the God that created the heavens and the earth with nothing but a word from his mouth. But it requires our submission. It requires our surrender to allow the Holy Spirit to have full and complete control of our lives, right? And this is not a message you're gonna hear in the world because the message of the world is gonna tell you day in, day out, moment by moment, that you just need to do whatever it takes for you to be in control, right? Whatever it takes for you to feel like you're in control, that you've got everything you want and everything you need, do that, right? Drink this beer, take this pill, buy that car, upgrade your gadgets, Whatever it is, it will fulfill you, it will empower you, it will satisfy you. And you know what the answer to that is? Lies, 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 and more lies. It will never, ever, ever work. But what does? The psalmist in Psalm 63, verses three through five, says, my lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I will bless you as long as I live. At your name, I will lift up my hands. Now listen to this, verse three, or verse five. You satisfy me. You catch it? What satisfies, what empowers, what fulfills? You. You satisfy me as with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. See, it is only through the Lord, through God filling us with the Holy Spirit and allowing us to know him and love him and serve him that we see, that we feel, that we know the satisfying and empowering love of God. Part of the reason that we need to gather with God's people on a regular basis is because it is only through that personal touch of the family of faith that we are reminded what true power is. Right? It's only when we see God working day in, day out in the situations of our lives and the lives of the people around us that we truly come to understand the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to see this. Anybody ever heard of the, the Mandela effect? Anybody know what the Mandela effect is? So the, the Mandela effect is, is this. It's, it's basically, if we're gonna can oversimplify it, okay? The Mandela effect is the creation of false memories. It, it comes from the fact that if you ask many people about who Nelson Mandela is, They'll know a little bit of his story, but they'll say, yeah, and he died in prison in the 1980s, right? Anybody know that Nelson Mandela died in prison in the 1980s? Don't raise your hand, because he didn't. But you will talk to many, many people who are convinced that yes, he did, he died, but instead he, he died in 2013. 
who's became a, a president. He's like, it's crazy, but people are certain he died in prison in the 1980s. Or think about, played Monopoly. Anybody play Monopoly? Right? Think of a Monopoly man. Uh, Uncle Moneybags, I forget what his name is, Uncle Moneybags or something like that. And he has the top hat and the mustache and he has the monocle, right? No, he doesn't have a monocle. He's never had a monocle. It's never been there. Anybody remember as a kid going to the grocery store and choosing, trying to go, okay, we're, we're, getting, we're getting peanut butter and we've got like Skippy and Jif and Jiffy. You know, those, those are the three main peanut butters. And, but any, did anybody ever eat Jiffy peanut butter? No, you didn't because there's no such thing. But you'll find people who are certain. If you're my age, okay, here's, here's for those of you who are close to my age, which, um, those are close to my age, there are people who, who remember seeing this movie that came out in the early 90s called Shazam, starring the comedian Sinbad. And, and, and they are, they've seen this movie, they remember it as a kid, they remember seeing it or at least seeing the trailers for it. But the reality is it never existed, right? And you will seriously find people who will fight you over the fact, yes, I remember seeing it. I remember when that movie, no, you don't, because it never existed, right? But the, here's, here's the thing with the Mandela effect. We can say things to ourselves and tell ourselves things with such confidence that we are sure that that happened. And our brains tell us that that's truth and begin to exist in our heads as truth. If we lie to ourselves enough with enough confidence, our feeble brains will believe the lie. It's science. We gather as a church. We gather in this place at this time with this practice to be reminded of the truth. We need voices in our lives that combat the lies we are told and the lies that we speak to ourselves. And the reality is this will never happen in isolation. Because in isolation, we will put those lies on repeat. And they will go round and round and round and embed themselves in our brains and in our hearts and in our lives. So sure, you go out this week, you can watch sermons online. You can listen to podcasts. You can read great books. And here's the thing, I encourage you to do all of those things because they are all good and they are all helpful and they are all beneficial. But they will always be generalities in your life. There will always be something out there that those people say, those people talk about, those people believe. You only get truth spoken over your life when you live in community with your brothers and sisters in Christ. When you come together to proclaim the goodness of God, of his majesty, of Jesus' sacrifice, and of the Holy Spirit's power in your life. Are our hearts consumed with and and satisfied by what God speaks to us through his Holy Spirit in our lives with one another 
in our time of lifting our voices together, in our times of looking at God's word together and having conversations, in being a family. Our gathering together each week for this 60 to 80 minutes is not and cannot be the entirety of our Christian faith and worship. But physically gathering with the local church body, with your brothers and sisters in Christ, is an indispensable practice of the Christian faith. It is a key component to maintaining a spirit that remembers God's majesty, Christ's sacrifice, and the Holy Spirit's power in our lives. Church, family, let us never forget the fullness of God's love for us and his provision for us to know him and love him and serve him with all that we have and all that we are. And in doing so, may we never forget the gift he's given us in the family of the local church to help us to grow and to mature in our understanding of his grace and his mercy and, and, and to have a proper response to his immeasurable greatness as we know him and make him known in whatever places, by whatever means he has called us to in the weeks, the days, the months, and the years ahead. Let's pray together. Father God, you are great and awesome indeed. And we know there is none like you. And we thank you for who you are. We thank you for how you love us and care for us, how you deliver us. And we thank you for the gift that we have of being a part of your family. Not just as those who are saved from our sin and then let go, where you go, okay, I saved you, I did what you needed, okay, now don't mess it up. But that you continue to provide for us every step along the way. You do that for us as individuals and you do that for us as the family. And one of the ways we know you have done that is through the local church, through this local body of believers. And Father, I'm so thankful for this local church, for Erie Evangelical Free Church, for the blessing that you've given many of us of being a part of this place, of having the blessing of sharing with one another, of reminding one another of your majesty, of Christ's sacrifice, of the Spirit's power. We pray that you give us the, the boldness and the confidence to continue to do that. And Lord, I thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are gathering all over the world with their local family. They are our brothers and sisters, but Father, you have put them in a place at a time with a purpose as well. And so we pray, pray your blessing over them that they would be reminding one another of your majesty, of Christ's sacrifice and the Spirit's power. And God, we do all of this because we understand that you are the great and awesome God who saves. None of this is because of who we are. It is all because of who you are. And so with the breath that you have put in our lungs, 
We praise you and honor you and cry out, great are you, Lord. We love you, and in your great and awesome name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.